Welcome listeners to Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast. I am your host, Andrew J. Schreier, and I am joined today by Lisa Boucher to talk about her book, Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture. Lisa, thank you for joining us here on Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm happy to be here. Lisa Boucher is the award-winning author of the book, Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture, which we're going to dive into a lot today. She's contributed to notable publications such as Shape Magazine, U.S. News and World Report, The Fix, and is a frequent guest on numerous syndicated radio and podcast shows where she talks about addiction, alcoholism, childhood trauma, and how we heal. A recovering alcoholic, she's been sober for 30 years and understands the complex nature of addiction and how childhood trauma is often at the root of what ails us. Also a registered nurse, Lisa believes the traditional healthcare does little to incorporate the mind-body connection, nor does our current culture appreciate the healing power of nature. And really, Lisa, lots of amazing contributions to this field, like really, truly appreciate the work you're doing and looking forward to learning more from you today. Thanks. Uh, I was telling you, we were talking about before, I, I've already recommended your book to an, a number of people from the get-go once I read it and I finished it. And one of the questions that I have right away is the title, Raising the Bar, where did that come from? Well, Raising the Bottom. Bottom, that's it, sorry. <laughs> raising the Bottom. Um, it came from, I had a very high bottom compared to what it could have been and compared to my mother's very low bottom. So I really, you know, she used to say, I always wrote fiction and she used to say, why don't you write about alcoholism? And there was just so many legs to that stool of what to write about. I mean, you're in counseling and all that. So you understand how multifaceted, you know, addiction and alcoholism can be. Right. So, I wasn't really sure. And I just let that kind of percolate. My mom passed in 2011 and literally one day I woke up and it was just, I, it, I knew what I wanted to write about. And I wanted to write about, my message really is, we don't have to hit these low devastating bottoms. And I think because of the stigma, which is so crazy. I mean, there's so many things that we could talk about because people have no problem getting a DUI, stumbling home drunk or leaving a party where they're smashed, but heaven forbid they quit drinking. They're so ashamed. I mean, it is so senseless how our culture has twisted this. I mean, we make what's not really acceptable, acceptable, and was healthy and wonderful getting sober, changing your life for the better, um, something where people have to feel ashamed. So I love that you're doing this podcast because we need to talk about this and really break it down. Like, why is it like that? It doesn't even make sense. It's irrational when you really think about it, that, you know, people can talk about their lives and their drinking and people go, oh my gosh, and they laugh and high five them and think it's funny, but there's a lot of damage that's happening on the backside. There's with family members, there's a lot of damage that's happening internally. You know, if you are driving drunk, like I'm sure I know I did. I mean, is there an alcoholic out there who hasn't driven drunk at some point? I was just really lucky and didn't get caught. I mean, that is the right. only reason why I don't have a DUI. So, I mean, let's get real. So 
Why though? I, I mean, I quit drinking before I had to have any of those things happen. And that's really my message. We, if we can look and figure out what it might look like early on, can we hit the brakes? And you're talking about a big like shift in that because in my work that I do, yeah, oftentimes I see people when they've hit, you know, these, they got arrested for something, they got hospitalized for, for something, they get in trouble, things get so bad. And then you hear some people say, well, they're not, they're not there yet. They're not at that point yet. And it's like, wasn't well, that like a, a warning sign where we can maybe do something about it now before it gets to that point where it is that bad and there is so much destruction and, and more people are hurt and families are devastated? Because I think there's also, in my work with families, because I work with families a lot too, is I think sometimes family members think, oh, they've hit rock bottom. How worse can things get? And addiction knows bottoms more than anything. It can, it can dig basements better than anything that I know. But your point is that there is no need for us to wait for someone to get to that point. We can try and help people and stop this from happening way before. It doesn't have to result in being in a hospital or being locked up in a squad car or even worse. Exactly. Because, you know, for a lot of people, there's a lot of functional alcoholics out there. There's a lot of very successful functional alcoholics. And our society does tend to look at the outside. And if you've got money and you live in this great house, you have this great car, you can be a hot mess behind closed doors, but everybody assumes, no, they're great. Look at their life. So we have all this superficiality deciding if we have a problem or not. So that's number one, we've got to like get rid of that, that benchmark that is ridiculous and really look at individuals. You know, I have, I have a neighbor and she said her husband drinks from 11 a.m. till night. And, um, you know, this was a man who had a very successful career and bought and sold companies and whatnot, but what a shame, you know, could be enjoying life. And what happens with people like that? I've seen it so much, especially being a nurse and I spent the bulk of my career in emergency rooms and psych wards. So you see these very affluent people coming to the ER and, you know, it'll manifest as liver problems, heart problems even because alcohol can thin the muscle walls of the heart and you get a cardiomyopathy going where your your the pump is just not as efficient um so it can manifest in many many ways but what people do and what the doctors do too is oh that's a heart problem no, actually, that's an alcohol problem. That's right. a heart problem because of the drinking problem. Mm -hmm. But they never connect it that way unless the person's liver um, enzymes and their labs are off the charts, then they tend to. But otherwise, they never really address it in a meaningful way. Like you said, when you, you know, alluded to my bio there, because I don't know why they don't do it. I think some of the 
medical people, and I don't know if you noticed in my book, I said, it wasn't intentional, but I said, oh my God, nobody's going to want to go to the hospital because they're going to think all the staff is drunk. And actually in some (laughs) nursing units I've worked on, it was kind of suspect because, you know, I mean, I've yet to work on a nursing unit where there hasn't clearly been a staff member that was in the throes of addiction. Yeah, and I've, I've noticed that with the opioid epidemic, because I've done a lot with opioids um, in the last, you know, couple of years, really. And there's been programs that I know of that are designed for even healthcare professionals, nurses who have had uh, problems with opioids, and, and they have an addiction, and there's an opportunity for them to get help. But so that's not like that's not happening. That does occur in all sorts of walks of life and profession. Yeah. Doctors overall, the general population has about a 10% rate of addiction for doctors. And some studies um, they've said it's 14%. So, I mean, is it because of the stress, the fear of being sued? I know that weighs heavy on a lot of doctors for if you're a surgeon or an OB doctor, they're um, malpractice insurance is astronomical. And that's why a lot of doctors, OB doctors left the field. So there's, you know, there's all sorts of things going on. They're just people too. Right. And, um, they have the same problems that we all do, but unfortunately people tend to look at their doctor as these almighty gods that are just going to direct them down the right path every time. And that's just simply not true. A lot of them need a lot of help themselves. Yeah, very good point. And I'm, we're going to get to some of the more stuff that you see in healthcare and nursing. So I got some questions on that. One of the two things that really stand out about your book that when I read it to me was the first thing is that your book is filled with multiple stories, but they're not just your stories. You talk about your story, you talk about your mother's stories, you read stories from a bunch of women that you've come into life with and interacted with. Part of your book has chapters of other people's stories. It's great to see you actually not just share yours, but other individual stories. What made you want to highlight some of those as opposed to just writing a typical addiction book of this is my life? You actually want to highlight other people's stories. Right. Well, two things, I think, and I don't know, some people might take this wrong, but I'm just going to throw it out there. I mean, addicts can be a little self-absorbed, right? And I did not, um, you know, I think my story is very interesting, but I think there's a lot of other people that had very interesting stories. And my real motive for doing that was I thought, okay, if somebody can't relate to me, or my mother, maybe they can relate to this person or this person or this person. So I did want a collection of voices because we all have different things that motivated and spurred our drinking. And that can be different for everybody. So I think I at least for people that are wondering if they have a problem, um, I think the book has been, well, I know it has. People have message me on social media that it's been very helpful to and a lot of times they'll cite I particularly related to so and so story or to that story so so that's why I did it I didn't want it to be this blah 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 about Lisa Boucher because there's a point to it I mean we all have our experiences but how much of it then becomes just self-indulgent and I wanted to steer clear of that at all costs. 
That's great because I felt like not only did I learn about you when I was reading it, but I felt like I was learning from other people. Like you said, people have reached out to you and told you I've connected with this person. I feel like I can relate to this person. I, I was learning about different people who had struggles, but also triumphs, who went through battles and who who came out and, and worked programs. And I got to hear and learn about multiple people, not just a one person's journey. It was multiple people that you were able to share and use your platform to share that. Right. So that's that's why I did it that way. That's, that's great. Another thing about your book that I found really intriguing is I've read a lot of books and stories about people's addictions and, and I, I see them and I pick them up and I, I enjoy doing it. It just helps me to learn where they're at and, and help pick up things. What stood out about yours was you talk about what happens and along the way, you are actually quickly to address some of the faulty thinking and behavior. You like pointed out even early on in the book that it was denial or justifying or rationalizing. Like there's some parts where you use italics to kind of point out like your faulty way. And you don't see that a lot in stories. You usually hear like the, all the destruction and what happened. And then later on, you sometimes hear about the recovery part, but you made it a, a point to address it like right away. Did you notice that? Well, I don't know if I noticed that, but I do know that because a lot of people have asked me like, well, what made you get sober? And I can tell you, well, like you read in the book when, when I got sober and my husband was like, oh no, you are not an alcoholic because I was not drinking every day. He wasn't coming home to a wine and roses scene where I'm, you know, passed out on the floor like my mother was, where clearly something is going on here. Um, but it was my behavior. It was the lability in my mood swings. And that's just not really who I am. Um, in a sober world, I'm a pretty even keel. I'm pretty calm. I mean, I can, I'm, I'm part Italian. So I've got that temper in there and I can get revved up, but I'm not, I'm maybe over the years too of, of being in recovery and I don't get riled up like I used to about things. So yeah. a lot of that is just growing up perhaps, but it was just, I knew that it was the alcohol that was making me have this roller coaster kind of behavior and depression and things like that, that I'm just not a depressive person. And there were days where I thought it was perfectly fine to put on bluesy music and get my booze and have a cry party. I mean, who does that? You know, I would never spend my afternoon doing that now. But honestly, I used to manufacture scenes like that. And it began to dawn on me, this isn't normal. This doesn't seem like what other people would do. And um, I just, you know, and then of course, growing up, with an alcoholic mother, by now, when my drinking starting to really escalate, my mom is sober. And so she's throwing little truth bombs. You know, I know they say, well, you're not supposed to, but actually she never pushed it hard, hard, but I'm very grateful that she would say, Lisa, do you think you're drinking too much? I mean, those things resonate. You might ignore them and I did ignore them, we'll but you see. still, yeah, it plants little seeds that, okay, maybe. And, you know, it takes one to know one, right? I mean, my kids, they're always like, well, how do you know? You know, they get so mad because 
Like there's just people over the years that you could just see it. You know, it takes one to know one. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd make predictions 15 years ago that all turned out to be true. And it just irritates the heck out of them. Like, well, how did you know that? And it's not that I'm some sort of psychic. It's just, I've been doing this alcoholism business since I've been born. So you tend to know what it looks like feels like even when the person isn't drinking, you can just, I can just feel it. You just know, right? You just know. So I, you know, having like with my mom and that, I just really didn't want to go there. And truly, Andrew, anybody can change their life early on if you can be honest with yourself. And I think this is the thing that holds us back. That denial instead of the rationalization, instead of saying, you know what? My drinking has progressed. If your drinking has progressed, you're on icy footing because that's one of the hallmark signs of the disease, right? Mm-hmm. If you're drinking twice a week and now you're drinking four and five times a week, that's a progression. Look at it. Yeah. And even not being able to see it in denial, there's so much you can go into about how powerful right. denial is and and how much of the disease is even based off that, but the individual, when they're in that, they, they still can't even see what's right in front of them. The logic that's there, you know, the fact that they're not, other people aren't doing what they're doing, but Mm -hmm. they are doing other things and worse things, but still not being able to see that that's like, that's not normal. Like you said, that's not a normal thing, but when they're in that, they're not, able to see it. And there's a lot of crazy things people have done and in, in the throws that they're using that when they get sober and look at, it, they're like, yeah, there's, there's no way a normal person would do that. There's, there's no way a casual drinker does that or someone who doesn't drink does that. But here I am. I know a guy who would pull a scheme on his neighbor to pretend to get gas for his snowblower. And he would go to the store the gas station, like two minutes before nine o'clock, because that's when alcohol is sold here. He used to pour gas in one can, buy booze, pour booze in the other small gas can and bring that home in order to hide his drinking from like his wife. Like, <laughs> oh and, my and, gosh. This is, and, and part of it is like, do you have, like, when have you ever heard that? Where, right, where do you right, ever yeah, hear that? That's that, so that, irrational. That, that's crazy, isn't right. it? Right. But in the midst of him doing that. That seems could, perfectly rational could, to him. Yeah, he could be holding the gas can and then the gas can full of booze and sit there in that moment thinking, I don't have a problem. Oh, that's crazy. It, well, you're right. I mean, <laughs> you need that moment of grace. I think we all get a moment of grace where we can have a, a, a little moment of clarity. And you're either going to jump on board and accept that and be honest with like, that is not normal or keep on keeping on. And that's what's so maddening. I mean, alcohol does shut down the prefrontal cortex, the computer in our brain. It really does. That's where it goes to first. So even after a few drinks, decisions, reactions, all of that is impacted and people don't want to grasp that either that we can make some very very poor decisions when we're drinking I know I did I know I did some you know you look back and you think wow that I'm lucky that 
you know, a lot worse things didn't happen with some of the decisions that I made. Yeah, absolutely. One of the focus on in your book is really the topic of, of women in, in drinking and alcoholism. And in fact, in your introduction, in like the second paragraph, I, I even highlighted it. The quote was, so many women are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on like that you know, that, that focus on the issue of women in particular with drinking? Absolutely. So that there's a line in the big book about women alcoholics can be, I'm paraphrasing, um, can be gone beyond recall in a few years. And that's kind of what I saw happen to my mother. She went from this social drinker, although she was abusing benzos, Valium from a doctor, Um, but her drinking in a span of five years went from, you know, going to, uh, we used to go to this lounge. I mean, who enlists their teenage daughters who aren't even old enough to drink to go to a lounge. That's a red flag, Um, (laughs) huge red flag, but there are moms who do that and justify it like mine did. And, but her drinking in a span of five years. So when I read that line, in the big book, I heard it, I felt it. And I knew, I guess that what I you know mentioned earlier, that moment of grace, that moment of clarity, I just knew that my fate was gonna be like my mom's if I did not stop. And so that was just it. I mean, our bodies don't have ADH. It's a hormone in the liver that helps break down alcohol. Women lack this. So our bodies are gravely impacted a lot faster than men. And this, you know, doesn't mean that men should have like the green light to just go drink up, but you know, it, it does. We have more fat cells and it's just biology. It's just a fact. So women cannot tolerate, I, and I've seen women and and really I'm seeing more and more it's really scary more and more younger women come to the hospital they're yellow they're jaundiced you know their livers are getting giving out as a scary moment it really is I mean that their bodies are their organs are shutting down it's not something that we need to take lightly I mean there is just so so much behind the curtain. I know like big pharma and big alcohol, big alcohol, especially a lot of their studies when they were like, oh, you need two glasses of wine or whatever, all that is so good for you. Well, guess what? They sponsored a lot of those studies to promote their product. And even like, there's just so many disconnects, the cancer society, how many bashes and galas do they do to raise money while serving gobs of alcohol, which is a class one carcinogen? Does this make any sense? They're promoting cancer causing agent at their function to raise money for cancer. And that's where you're talking about that, that clash between the cultural side of it, which is in your title, you know, making mindful choices in a drinking culture. There's a huge cultural aspect that doesn't make sense when we say these things and do these things, but yet, you know, let's be concerned about drinking and driving, or let's be concerned about the impact of drinking on this. But at the same time, we do things to try and 
promote it with the very same thing that we're saying isn't good for it. And that's, that's gotta be so hard for someone to really with younger age, which you talk about too, is when people are younger and they don't have that capacity to make those decisions and they're adding alcohol to their brain and their brain's not developing the way it oh, there's nothing should. worse than a drunk teenager but you know yeah. a lot of that that whole mommy wine culture and all that it's just really encouraged and then women jump on that bandwagon to justify drinking when you know they drink at play dates now that what in what world is that a good idea to have i mean i raised twin boys and i was sober thank god i can't imagine driving my sons around in their little car seats drunk or tipsy or you know taking them on a play date and sitting there really oblivious to what's going on around me because i'm so worried about my wine and i'm not bashing those women because i probably would have been right there with them. But when you are sober and you're looking at it from a different perspective, it's, it's really scary. You know, I mean, I'm very concerned about that, that my daughter-in-law drinks, it makes me a little nervous. You know, she gets a little snippy when she's, um, when she's been drinking and that's just not good. You know, children, I know as a child of an alcoholic, when my mother was out of control in any kind of way, which was quite often, you feel a lot of fear. Yeah. I remember your, your book addresses a lot of those ideas of like, you know, Facebook groups for drinking moms and, and promoting that kind of stuff where it's, you know, long day, you know, I drink cause I have kids. Like there's, there's, memorabilia like wine glasses that have sayings like that do you what kind of feedback do you get from people when you have those conversations because that is something that people do that is a a cultural thing like what kind of feedback do you get when you talk about the potential dangers or destruction or or wrong messages they'll send well it really depends who you're speaking with and it's just been my experience When you're talking to someone who might have an alcohol problem, they get extremely defensive. They get very angry. Um, A few have even been irate. So, and I've noticed that someone who is a social drinker, like truly, I, I think we have, let's just define that. What is a social drinker? Because I think we have normalized alcoholism. Like people think anytime they're drinking out and they're in a social environment, they're social drinking, right? This is what, no, that's baloney. Yeah, I'm not just, drinking alone by myself. Right, so I can't have a problem. Well, you've so, been drinking all day, every day, you know, just because you're with yeah. the same party group of friends doesn't mean that you don't have a problem because y'all probably, I know when I drank, most of my friends drank like I did and they drank heavily. And so it really does. It depends who you're talking to. I know things online I've been like viciously attacked by, and I don't care. It doesn't bother me, but it's like, it's almost like, God, you're, you're just outing yourself as the alcoholic. If you're getting this ticked off, right? Right. Like why Absolutely. are you getting so mad when any normal person would say, you know what, that is a really bad idea to drink with my kids. If I really need to drink that bad or I want a night out, you know what? Go get a babysitter and go have your fun. Take an Uber so you're not driving and 
have at it. You know, I mean, nobody is saying that's a terrible thing to do. I mean, you know, people want to go bluff steam, but if you're drinking every day, can you really say you're a social drinker? I don't think so. I think and that's and, you, and your book does a good job of, you know, so many books go from that complete abstinence to that alcoholism or addiction, but your, your book does also mention a lot of like the casual and like mentioning, like when people do these things, like casual drinkers don't have to do this. People who do socially drink don't have to do this. And then you really lay out a lot of the differences when it comes to, cause there's that whole list you made of different like warning signs and things that are be like, you know what, this is probably more of a problem. So you actually did take time to address that there are casual drinkers out there. It's not just a completely abstinent or there's alcoholism. There are casual drinkers. However, we have culturally sort of morphed alcoholism into the social drinkers and casual drinkers at times. Right. Like we've made it so if you don't drink heavily, you're abnormal. That's what's happened over. I've noticed the shift over the years that it went from having a cocktail at an appropriate time with adults to drinking all the time in front of little kids, toddlers. I mean, when children are drawing pictures of their parents holding wine glasses, you're drinking too much. These kids are already in distress. And instead of co-signing on each other's BS and saying, oh, it's fine, it's fine. No, actually it's not fine because like I said, I've been there as that child. And when you're drinking, you're just not present. You're there, but you're not there. And the kids internalize that as I'm not important. And then I think, you know, the way some parents are so over the top, is it because they have a lot of guilt because of their drinking? And so now they're going to overcompensate and indulge these kids. So it can, it can really end up in a vicious cycle and parenting is gravely impacted by it, but it can be very subtle. And is you know, here again, people can't read between the lines and see how their behavior and their drinking, they're saying, well, I'm not hurting anyone. Well, yeah, actually you are, but you can't see it because right. you don't think, because it's not something egregious to where like you're, you're falling on the floor, then you think it's fine. But it's really not. I mean, we need to be really mindful of what we're role modeling, of how the kids feel. I mean, everybody wants to have these great kids. And you know what? I did have great kids. I had Division I athletes. My kids were stars in high school. And I never really cared either way. And I was talking about one of my sons. And I said, I think that's why you guys, because it wasn't about me. And it wasn't about what am I going to get of, of being the mom of these superstars. And of course, they're twins. And there was, you know, during high school, I mean, they were in the paper constantly and all that kind of stuff. But it didn't matter to me if they were superstars or not, because thank God recovery grounded me enough to really look at what's important. And it wasn't about Lisa Boucher having all these great twins, because that's what I've seen parents do. They make it all about them. And they love the attention they're getting from having these superstars that they push their kids or they don't raise them with the tools to be those superstars. 
accountability. You know, when my kids came home from sports and they were whining about the coach or that, and I would just time out, stop, you know, and I would point them to, well, let's see, you have a basketball hoop, you have gyms that you belong to, you have the wide, this when they were younger, so practice more. You know, that's what I'd say to them. And that would be the end of it. Instead of I'm calling the coach and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> because a lot of parents do that, I think, because of their low self-esteem and they're getting their kudos through their kids. Now, what if I had that insight if I was still drinking? Absolutely not. There's no, no way I would have seen that. And I was able to see some of that behavior in my husband and then bring it to his attention. Like, you know what? This isn't about you. Right. So if the boys want to do this and they're willing to work and do what it takes to do it, then we're going to support them. And if they're not, then I'm not going to push it. And that was just kind of how we approached it. So, you know, it was just very different. I'm sure from how I would have been if I was still drinking. It's very scary when parents who are, who are drinking and things happen and you, you try and point out, you know, the kids being there, what the kids are picking up and parents in that denial will, will say, oh, they don't, they don't know it, or they don't know any better, or that's no big deal. Like, I always tell parents, whenever I work with a parent, I always say, children from a very young age, start to be aware of things. And they're not going to know everything. They're not going to know every single detail. But whatever you think they might know, probably multiply that by five or 10. Absolutely. Well, and they're very intuitive. They pick up on the energy in the room and the, the, you know what I'm saying? Like you can see kids as young as three years old act differently once their parent starts drinking. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it where the kid will even shift because now all of a sudden that parent that was loving and wonderful a minute ago is now rather snippy by the time they're on their third drink. And the kid is very like, who am I getting? You know what I'm saying? They're not. And it makes them. So there's just a lot of complexity in it. And I I think people have gotten very selfish, Um, very, very selfish that it's more about them than what they're role modeling. They want to drink. And I know I use the example in my book. Why is it at, at a three-year-old's birthday party, you see more beer cans and, and wine bottles than you do balloons and cupcakes. Yeah, exactly. And I find that incredibly disturbing. You can't have an afternoon or an evening three-year-old's birthday party without the parents getting sloshed or making it a, a drinking event for them. And I think it's just incredibly selfish. It's just scary because I remember, and that's why, I mean, it's working with kids is also an amazing thing. I've worked with some kids who are really young. And I remember this is what made me think of this is I had a, a couple who I was seeing and there was a lot of family dysfunction going on. The son actually first started seeing me. And then we decided that because of what was going on, we should get everyone involved. So I was having couple sessions. I was having individuals. I was having the whole family in at times. And I remember the issue of drinking came up about the mom and dad. And as I was talking to them individually, they were talking about, yeah, we drink and we know it causes problems between us. And I was trying to say, well, what about like the kids? Like, do you think the, the kids see this? Do you think the kids are aware of what's going on? And, and they were 
like right away, like, oh no, we don't think they see anything or notice anything. That's and these were funny. these were and these were kids in high school. So my mind is already like, like they're in high school. They're they're probably noticing quite a bit. Oh, of course they are. So I saw the two kids separately. And I was talking about, you know, like, well, what's going on with with the family that you guys think is a problem that we might want to address in therapy or some things that you think we could help you guys out as, as a family unit. And the the daughter who was younger, her first sentence was, my parents are alcoholics. Oh, wow. So wow. when she's able to tell me that, wow. and then you have the parents who are talking to me as if their kids don't know anything. Right. Wow. Or they're not aware of anything. So when now I need to know, how did that work out? Did you say something to the parents? And then. Yeah. Like when I, when I saw them again, you know, and I, and I'm very transparent with, with when I work with, you know, the families and the kids and, and separate entities and whatnot. But part of it was like, wow, have you guys ever said that to your, your parents? Have you ever, told them that and they go, we've mentioned it. We've said that we think their drinking is a problem. And I go, well, I mean, what do you want me to do with it? And, and they said, you can tell them that we said this, like, mm-hmm. let them know that. So I, so I did, I told them that that's, you know, I said, it's interesting. You guys told me this. And then when I, we talked to your kids, they, they brought up that this was a big problem. And after that, so many stories of the alcoholism within the family started springing up. I was hearing cover up stories. I was hearing stories of the kids tossing bottles, trying to throw away all that. But that is just, that came out from the kids. Yeah. You know, and then here you are as in, that's a, high school is not really a young age to be aware of that. But I know kids who are little know, you know, hey, daddy's passed out on the couch. Right. You might tell, they might tell him that they're sick. But you know what? As they get older, those they pieces start out. to. Yeah, they do. Kids are very perceptive. They figure it out. The only person they're uh, an alcoholic in the family is fooling is themselves. Yeah. Because everybody knows what's going on. Yeah, and that's a that's a scary moment. And I know I, one of the quotes that I have here from your book that really this is like a it's a it's a gut punch when you work with families and and kids is that you wrote down these kids see it everywhere they go they hear parents joke and romanticize their drinking and substance abuse and then later some of these same parents wail in agony if their kids become addicted that is that is gut punching Mm -hmm. um that that's a i have read that a few times when i saw that because i've seen that in the work that i do in, in kids that i've counseled and and younger adults, when they realize that it, when I work with adults who don't even want to acknowledge that their kids have an addiction mm-hmm. and they, they are, like you said, they are wailing in agony over that. Mm-hmm. And then I read your book and a part of it's like, yeah, that's, we didn't have to get to this point. Right. Right. We, we didn't right. have to. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I guess I was hoping maybe if people saw what it could look and feel like. Some of the feelings I think are more important actually than what it looks like of like, why do we drink? And why are you self-medicating? Cause that's really what it comes down to. Um, and encouraging this thing when, you know, if it's not working and the family is 
you know, your kids are unhappy, you're fighting with your partner, your spouse, whatever, clearly, you know, it, uh, in nine times out of 10, you remove the alcohol and already things settle down and shift, you know? And, and when you have two people that drink, that can be complicated because one quits. I know like with my husband, we're still together, but um, I don't think he was real thrilled with me <laughs> quitting drinking. It was like a bait and switch. And we yeah. were only married four years when I quit. So I think that was kind of not what he had planned, but um, I don't think we'd still be married. Clearly, if we both were drinking, that would have been a real hot mess in a very different book. You know? <laughs> so, right. And yeah. I know a lot of people, I think the whole idea of getting sober is you know, promoted as this is going to make things better. This is going to be good for everyone. You know, life will get better if you get sober because the the drinking or the drug use is causing so many problems. But when someone gets sober and engages in recovery, that does create a change for a lot of people. And that change is not always welcomed. It's not always dealt with in a positive way. Sometimes people struggle to deal when someone does get sober and stops drinking. Like that does affect the family or the relationship in ways that you don't realize at first. You're just, they're just hoping that the person stops using. So the chaos goes away, mm -hmm. but then other yeah. things start to happen. Yeah. That, that's a really good point because it's, it changes the whole dynamics of the relationship. And that, I mean, you could, talk about that for a whole other, you know, 40 minutes or whatever, because I know just within my marriage, when I think my husband was rather manipulative, you know, when you're with someone who's drinking, you can say, well, you said this or you, and then you're thinking, oh, did I, I don't know. So you just kind of, you're easier to manipulate. Absolutely. And then when I got sober, and he tried that same step, well, it wasn't gonna work. So then we're butting heads and we're, and I'm pushing back and, and there was a good year or more where we almost had to reset how this, you know, I'm morphing into a very different person and he's still trying to operate with that old person who has alcohol in their system. And it wasn't working. And we went through some trials, you know, because you're right. And some marriages don't make it. If, uh, if the other person just cannot stand losing their best drinking buddy. And, and sometimes they got to go and that's okay too. I mean, it's devastating, but, you know, you just have to take care of yourself. And I pretty much set that boundary very early like this is what I'm doing and if you don't like it then there's the door because it's not negotiable right and um yeah with and I'm, I'm interested to know I was really happy to to find your book that was really focusing on women and drinking because I know here in Wisconsin we have struggled to provide treatment resources for women there's a lot available for men there's a lot of like residential programs or halfway houses but we have struggled here to have places for women. It's always been like an under addressed need. I was really happy because a former supervisor of mine just opened up a residential treatment program for women. And that was like a really good resource for the community. And I even rec I even told her about, hey, like this is a good book to have for the, the, the women there. 
Have you found that problem too, that resources for women with alcoholism or drug addiction in general is harder to come by or lesser than when it comes to resources for men? Well, I think a little bit because a lot of times with women, they have children. And so that complicates things. And I know I was talking to a girl not all that long ago. There's more things opening up where like, because you want these moms to be able to be with their toddlers and babies if possible, you know? So I just think there's the resources are lacking in general. Um, you know, there was this big collaboration with Google and they call it 115. It's here in, uh, I live in Dayton, Ohio. And so they built this whole place where they're gonna have, and the concept is great. So they're gonna have like an inpatient rehab and then the people can then move into like sober living within the same campus and they can get their, um, and this is mostly for opioid addicts. Um, so they can get their Suboxone or whatever. However, here again, it's kind of a joke. I mean, I'm working with a woman now who she was, that was her issue was drugs more than alcohol. And even she said, she kind of confronted them and said, well, this isn't gonna work. This is just gonna <laughs> encourage everyone to use and abuse and come here like a pit stop to get loaded up when they're, you know, done running and gutting the streets and need a little break. And they'll come here and get their Suboxone. So they won't have to go through all these withdrawals. And then they're going to go back on the street. So here's this collaborative effort that was supposed to be so helpful. And I don't want to say that it won't help some people, but I, I, I think a lot of the motives behind it, let's, Let's not kid ourselves. They're really in it for the money they're making on the uh, MAT. And that's just the way it is. Are they really focused on recovery? And why am I saying that? Because when I was meeting this girl there once a week and I started talking to the people who work there, you know, some of these women and men who have been raised in alcoholic homes, who have been raised in utter chaos, their whole lives, they have no life skills, zero. It's, it's astounding how a lot of the women and men don't really understand a basic checking account, right. how to basic do laundry, how to cooking. make a meal, yeah. how to make a healthy, well-balanced meal and put it on a table and set a table. I mean, they don't have these life skills. I feel like these rehabs and these places like 115 why aren't they teaching people how to live and cope? Because this is why I don't care how clean you get when you leave this environment that's very structured. If you can't handle living in the real world, you're going to go back to using. And that's what happens time and time again for so many people. They don't really equip them. You know, it, it should, it's shameful in my eyes to stay in any sort of long-term care facility for six months, three months, five months, a year and not learn something. Yeah, we right? used to, yeah, I grew up, when I first started working in this profession, I started working in group homes, residentials where they live there. And I remember that was such a big point for us was, you know, each week you're going to be assigned to cook meals and you're going to 
we had packets on, you know, balancing a checkbook, which nowadays doesn't happen as much, but that was when it was more popular, but we were teaching that to the adolescents, you know, they were awesome. See, I don't see that here. And it's just maddening that, you know, people don't even understand some of them about apartment rents and deposits and, you know, things like that, then in the real world, you have to do. And so. And that's a good point, because I, I a story that comes to mind and, and people are going to think this is crazy, but this is exactly what we deal with is I remember I was working with kids and all of a sudden the kitchen was like really burning, like smoking up. And it was like, what's going on here? And the kid was trying to make a grilled cheese <laughs> and it was just burnt burnt as can be and you know we walk up there we make sure like the the house isn't burning down and and we go what happened like and he's like I was making grilled cheese and I was like well what'd you do and he never made a grilled cheese in his lifetime right and I said to him because this was a guy who I was like it's like you've never made a, a grilled cheese I I know you know how to cut up drugs and you know how to distribute them you know how to do all of that like you were a kid that was heavily involved into drug dealing you were taught how to deal drugs before you were even taught how to make a grilled cheese sandwich exactly that is a great and that is that is that is exactly what i'm talking mind-blowing it is because they're very street savvy and how to survive and whatnot but basic life skills clueless there's there's the last thing i want to touch on with you is the nursing part that you've already alluded to and my mom's a nurse i I got a lot of respect for i work with nurses at our treatment facility and i love hearing your talk about the the drinking and how you you give a really crazy number i don't know about number but you talk about Substance abuse in one form or another contributes to an overwhelming amount of hospital admissions, either directly or indirectly. Mm-hmm. Yet it seems like we don't really hear about that. Like that doesn't get talked about a lot because we always talk about addiction is going to lead you. If you keep using, it's going to lead you to, you know, the morgue, the mental hospital or being incarcerated, but they don't talk about all the different ways that drug use winds like sends you to a hospital, you always mention overdose. Like they always mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. you're going to overdose or you might overdose. But why don't we talk about all the other different things that can happen to you I don't know. as a result? Because I think that's something that's missing in a lot of education. Well, it is. I mean, a lot of the people that are shooting drugs or, you know, they are getting horrible abscesses in their arms that, I mean, I've seen some where they end up losing their arm from above the elbow. Right. Because you can end up with gang. I mean, there's just a lot of things, but you're right. Nobody really talks about it. Why not? I don't know. Maybe enough people don't see it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just like I alluded to earlier that a lot of addicts can get a lot of severe heart problems, a lot of cardiomyopathy, or they get this pericarditis where an infection around the lining of the heart from dirty needles, from, you know, just unsanitary conditions. So there's some really life-threatening things. And okay, so let's talk about how does that impact society? Well, 
people, you know, we pay for that. Most of them don't have insurance, right? So they're in an ICU for two weeks. I mean, their stay can go to millions of dollars. I mean, that's happened where people are in these trauma accidents and they are in a hospital for nine months or whatever, and they have no insurance. So all of those things, sure, the hospital writes it off or whatever, but we all, society, you know, I think I saw a stat and this is an older stat too. It was like up to uh, 2000, I want to say like 16 or something, but it was $249 billion a year impact to society with the cost of addiction and that. And it's just for a plethora of things for stuff that I'm talking about in the healthcare arena and, you know, just all the societal problems with kids that aren't learning and kids that aren't being fed and well cared for. And it's just a huge societal problem. And that's at the, you know, when things get really bad, but yet there's so much glorifying and encouragement to drink up drink and nobody thinks it'll ever happen to them. And it does, you know, I mean, like I said, in the affluent communities, those are the hardest people to reach because they have that financial structure around them. Nothing ever really falls apart, but their health. Right. So they died decades earlier than they would have. And that's what I've seen is they just, um, they die far sooner in their 60s. It seems to catch up with them with all sorts of health issues that um, from a life of, you know, fatty dinners and good booze and whatever, but it one way or the other, it's going to catch up with us. That's just amazing to hear that that amount of stuff you see in the hospital it's not just the overdoses that we're talking about. We always say that. And I think that's part of like that, you know, scare tactic, like you got to stop using because you're going to end up overdosing in a hospital. But I really feel like there's a missed mark on all the things that are happening because there are also plenty of people who don't go to the hospital who are, they're not overdosing from alcohol. You know, they don't experience that. There are other health things going on but we almost, you know, when we kind of talk about raise the bottom, we are almost waiting until it is that overdose. Right, right. To, to well, finally think, say something. I think the only reason why they started talking about opioids was because it was too hard to ignore because the morgues were getting full. Right, it was right. getting that bad. And so in, in some counties and that literally their morgues were filled up. So in Ohio then, was hit very hard. Yes, Montgomery like County. Significantly that that yes. Montgomery gets mentioned a lot. I'm in Montgomery County. So we and I think they think it's probably because you have I-70, I-75, and there's just a lot of drugs that were flowing through this area. So you know people were noticing it, but the alcohol kills people much more slowly. And it does it in not such a savage way where you end up immediately dead and the morgues are piling up. But, Correct. But the death rate, it still kills more people. It killed 88,000 in the opioid. And this was at the height of the opioid epidemic. So you have 88,000 people a year dying from alcohol and 72,000 from the opioids. 
And yet the opioids got all the attention, got all the money, got, you know what I'm saying? So nobody really wants to look at the alcohol because number one, I mean, it is, it does drive the economy to a degree. I mean, restaurants, a lot of their bulk of their sales is alcohol and that keeps them going. So it is that double-edged sword of contributing mightily to the economy. But then on the backside, it also drains the economy because all the lives and the lost productivity and, you know, business hours. And I mean, it's just so, it's so complicated. Yeah, extremely. But I, I think, I think that's a really good, we've been trying to work with getting some staff and peer specialists to connect with hospitals so that when things do happen like that, we can create a bridge between hospital and treatment. And we've seen some success in Wisconsin with those programs. Um, and, and around the nation, you hear more of those where they try and get someone in there to be like, hey, you're, you're here in the hospital. This is what happened to you. Let's get you into treatment. How do we get you some help? Right. And, and I think that's important because I think that's an area where you see it a lot. You right. see it a right. lot more than in other places. And I just, I feel like that's been ignored for a while as to all the different impacts, you know, drinking can have. It's not just the, the last resort of overdose, but it does affect you way early on. There was a great book I read way back. It was, I think it was, I don't know how old it was, but it, called, it was called You Are What You Drink. Oh, interesting. And, and the author actually went into such detail about how drinking affects everything from like your skin, how it affects like your hair. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a really fascinating book yeah. that wasn't wasn't just a scare tactic book, but it was right. more of like, hey, well, you like, can't scare what drinking does. Yeah. You, know, you can't scare them sober. That never works. So we, Yeah, we people still try. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so... This is um this was really great. I really appreciate you coming on here, Lisa. There's no just problem. so much, so much in here about you know drinking culturally among women with parenting with kids, you know, with the healthcare system. It's a big subject. I mean, right? There's just so many aspects to it. It really is complicated. It is huge. And I'm and I'm glad your your book is able to address you know, touch on those things and, and address some of those issues, highlight some stuff that is not being addressed or talked about. And there's just a, a lot in here. So I really enjoyed it. I've, I've recommended it to a, a ton of people. I'm going to keep referring people to it. Oh, so thank you. So once again, I'm glad I want you to say, enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks for joining us listeners. Definitely check out her book, Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture. Go to her website, which is raisingthebottom.com, and also check her out on numerous social media accounts and, and learn more and connect with her. As she shared here, she connects with people when social media and she interacts with people as well. So um, that's great to see as well. So thanks again, Lisa, for, for joining me today. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. As always, I hope you learned something. <laughs>